HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Dyed Green. I'm Kate McCabe. And I'm Max Sussman. Gary Hughes is the chef at the Shelbourne, one of Dublin's finest and also oldest hotels, which, incidentally, is celebrating its 200th year next year in 2024. To be really honest, the phrase hotel restaurant It doesn't always conjure excitement or make people think of like cutting edge food trends or anything like that. That said, we really were excited to talk to Gary because the Shelburne under his leadership has developed a culinary program that truly is exciting. It's creative. It's locally sourced. It's delicious. It's kind of everything that you don't associate with that phrase hotel restaurant. It's got a lot going on. It sure does. The Constitution Room at the Shelbourne, which is where the Irish Constitution was drafted, is one of the most elegant and sought-after private dining rooms in Dublin. And the afternoon tea service, which is where I actually experienced my first afternoon tea, is fully booked a month in advance. We actually had to ask precisely what is meant by afternoon tea, because that's something that I don't really know. I mean, I like a cup of tea every once in a while, but listeners should know this is much more than that. It is is ornate, it is elegant, it is extravagant, and it's a whole thing. And not to steal his thunder, but Gary talks about how he literally travels like to five different hotels in a day to experience all of their afternoon teas and try to... uh, find out what was the most sort of inspirational and qualities that he wanted to capture for the Shelbournes as he was developing their menu. They plan everything out six months ahead of time. It's booked a month ahead of time. It's very impressive. But we talked to Gary about his own personal and professional journey as a chef and what it takes to run an operation as sprawling as the Shelbourne. And it was such a really incredible and interesting conversation. He's been there in this position for 15 years and the work that goes into maintaining the work culture there and how he arrived 
at that was one of the most interesting parts for me. It is a testament to Gary's strength as a leader and as a chef that um, 35 people who are members of his core staff have also been there with him for 15 years. And that was just shocking to me. I, I mean, I, I don't have that back of house experience, but I do know we talk to chefs all the time, whether in Ireland or the US, and they're always talking about how hard it is to get good staff. And I'm actually amazed. I, I think I was floored when yeah. he said that. I mean, clearly he's got the secret to success that some other people need. Yeah. Like thinking about running, thinking about hiring, you know, even a small staff gives me the heebie-jeebies sometimes. So the idea of staffing a place like the Shelbourne, which has hundreds and hundreds of people that all need to be operating at a really high level is, um, it's a lot. The number of scones they bake every day will shock you. Yeah. Wow. You got to listen for the answer. You got to guess when you're listening to the intro, guess how many scones they bake and then listen for the answer. And wow, if, if we you, have a contest? Yeah. If you guess the, the number of scones. The first person to comment on our Instagram post with the number of scones, honesty appreciated, we'll get a prize. Yeah. As soon as we make dyed green t-shirts, you'll get a free one. Or a tote bag or a mug. Yeah, mug and we'll know it's not swag. a good guess because it's it, it'd be, you know, if you yeah. comment within the first 40 minutes of the post being up, we'll know. <laughs> what? All right, there it is. Our first dye green official contest launched. Okay. All right, thanks everyone for tuning in. Here's Gary Hughes. Gary Hughes, thank you so much for joining us on Dyed Green. Thanks for having me. We're really excited to chat with you today. And we'll just dive right into it. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started cooking? Did you go to culinary school? Did you grow up cooking? Was there a lot of food around your house? How did it all start for you? I, uh, there's a couple of stories how it started, but like most uh, chefs my age, I think I, I used to spend a lot of time with my grandmother. And in our kitchen, she used to make the most fabulous soda bread. Uh, she used to make rhubarb tarts. I didn't like rhubarb back then, but I love it now. Uh, that's when I kind of got the interest for it. Um, so from a quite a young age, I wanted to be a chef. I think my first experience, like I'm the executive chef here in the Shelburne for 15 years. I have the wrinkles and the grey hair to show. But my first experience here, I, I spent a lot of time as well in the hospital when I was a kid. And when my dad collected me from the hospital just up the road, he brought me into the Lord Mayor's Lounge uh, where we do all our afternoon teas. And he set me up on the couch and he got me an eclair. And I'll always remember looking around in astonishment going, wow. And I'll always remember the eclair. And then when I eventually came back to be the executive chef, I, when I'm writing the menus, I always take it back to when times make you used to feel good about yourself when we were all kids. And I've always remembered the time where my dad got me the eclair. So every time when we do our afternoon tea, there's a different eclair. And the, the staff would tell the story of well, this is why the chef has an eclair on the menu. And there always will be an eclair on the menu once I'm here. So it's a tribute to my dad for probably starting off my, my love with the Shelburne. That's a beautiful story. I would I like to imagine that there's a bunch of people eating eclairs now coming through and having those experiences that they'll take with them into their lives as they grow up, you know? Yeah, we do. We do about 120 people every day for afternoon tea. So there, there's definitely people upstairs now eating eclairs. <laughs> That's so cool. I was wondering if you could explain what afternoon tea is just for an American audience who, who might not really understand all everything that goes into something like that. 
So afternoon tea is probably the most uh, traditional thing that we do here in the hotel. So uh, we would do three sittings a day. So for afternoon tea, it comes in and it's very grand, the room. The Lord Mayor's Lounge is full of old paintings. We would have a piano player playing throughout the day. And then we would start it off with some light fare. So you'd have some nice selection of sandwiches, whether it was our homemade smoked salmon, whether it was our chicken and avocado or our goat cheese with tomato. So you'd have some nice dainty sandwiches to start. Then you would be offered your teas or coffees or if you're doing afternoon tea here, you have to have champagne. So then we would roll out the, the pastries. So we would do our themed afternoon tea every six months. So we would uh, concentrate on an eclair and then probably something cakey and something chocolatey and something with a, with a crunch. I try and develop four different textures for the four different pastries. And then obviously you would get your scones and your, your gingerbread and then your pastries to take away. So it's a, it's a place to be. The biggest thrill I get is it's, it's a three to four week wait time to get into the room when we're doing like 120 covers. So it's kind of like when you come into the Lord Mayor's Lounge, you forget about the hustle and bustle that's outside. You just sit down, you enjoy the room, you enjoy the piano player, and hopefully you enjoy the food. I had the benefit of having tea there in April on Easter Sunday. It was amazing. It was, it was actually my very first afternoon tea experience. And this might sound silly, but I was very surprised by the sheer number of teas that are available. <laughs> yeah, and the food was incredible. Thank you. This is kind of off script, but you mentioned your grandmother earlier and getting your love of cooking from being with her. My dad is from Tullamore. He came to the States with his family. Um, and my grandmother used to cook every Sunday and she was a big baker. And so she she made soda bread and all that kind of stuff. And she also used to make this sort of, I don't know, it's like, like a combination between a pastry and a fruitcake, and it was called Megarish. Do you know what that is? Because I've never come across it since, and I don't know anyone yeah, else who right. knows what it is. It's an enigma, I guess, Megarish. It's like fruitcake no, wrapped in pastry or something. Okay. I'm going to Google that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that might be your next, uh, on your next menu. Who knows, right? Okay. Super exclusive. I don't know. I didn't like it, I have to say. <laughs> no offense. No, no. So with the tea, people are coming, are booking that out three to four weeks in advance. Does that mean that yes. most of the folks that are there are are local and are able to plan that far ahead? Or is it someone also coming in on holiday that would build that into their time in Dublin? A lot, of, a lot of the time with the guest relations that we have in-house when the guests are coming, because we, we have a lot of American guests in the hotel. 80% of our guests will be American throughout the year. So when they're taking the booking, they will ask, do they want to dine with us for afternoon tea? Um, but then a lot a lot of local, a lot of occasions, it's a lot of uh, birthdays, baby showers, wedding showers, just bringing mom out. Uh, it's like, if I look at it now, you won't get in in December. It's already out you know so it's the play it's the i think it's the most valuable seat on the green for afternoon tea when you look at the facts and the figures that walk go into it like we bake every morning uh roughly about two thousand scones just to get us through the day <laughs> so i have i have a baker that works at night that makes the brown bread but then the last job would be the scones so um you know the day start that's how my day starts off i walk in past the scones every day obviously as you said uh afternoon tea is a is a tradition. How did you develop your version there? Were you inspired by other afternoon teas that you had the opportunity to do research about? And what makes the Shelburne's a unique version? Like, what did you take from the traditional and what did you create? Yeah, I'd like to think we're industry leaders about 
Well, about 10, 12 years ago, I did the example. I'll always compare Dublin to London. And myself and my wife did a trip where we did uh, five afternoon teas in one day, listing from the Ritz to the Savoy to I, oh, the Four Seasons to Browns. Uh, by, by seven o'clock that night, I was caked out. <laughs> but I, I prepared to what we were doing. And where I'm very lucky here in the hotel, like m- most of my team have been with, I'm here 15 years and most of my team are with me 15 years. And I've got like some fabulous pastry chefs. And I'll always come up with the ideas and they always kind of look, oh, that's going a bit too far. But then the next day, they'll actually come back with a better idea on top of my idea. So we bounce off well. We always try and team the tease of what's going on. And like it's for me, it's very holistic where I have to be six months ahead. By the time we design the tea, taste the tea, uh, and then we'll, we'll go to marketing. So it's always six months out. So like we've already done the Christmas afternoon tea for this year. We've already decided on it. And now we're working on the new tea for January going forward. Like we've done some fabulous team teas down through the years. One that really sticks out would have been, we did the Michael Flatley tea where I, I learned with Michael fabulous guy um, I learned with Michael that he paints with his feet yes and he w- he actually hung up some paintings throughout the hotel of of his artwork and I thought it was fabulous so it was, it was hanging in the building quite a while and then I just, I just thought about oh, we could do something like that when I looked at the colours and the depth that was there so we approached Michael could we do the tea and he, he loved it because he's a regular guest here in the hotel he stays there quite a lot so it took us about a year to get the tea ready between we had to because all the paintings were privately sold so we had to get permission from the owners to to use the the paintings in the tea and then we had to get the the right color for the chocolate so we had to get artwork developed in france so it, it took it was a long long process but we finally got it across the line um, and the, the funny thing was with um, I met Michael quite a few times with his assistant and we were talking about the tea and we were doing a big launch here in the hotel on local radio. And I had all the tea laid out for Michael. Now, bear in mind, I've met him about six times at this stage and I had the tea all ready for, for him. And it, it was fabulous. I did, uh, my pastry chef, Quiva Hannigan, amazing, pulled off a great job. I said, Michael, are you ready to taste the tea? And then he told me he was celiac. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no>. Oops. <laughs> and I went. So the whole conversation then on national radio just ended up about being dietaries and allergens and so but what the good thing about it was um he came back the following month. He recreated the tea that was gluten-free friendly and we served it up to his room and it was really nice touches. Michael came down into the kitchen and thanked all the pastry chefs one by one for making his tea possible. But the tea was so good, it's the first time we actually let it run for nearly two years over a three-year period. People just kept looking for it and looking for it. So that was pretty amazing. Like, as one of the team teas, you know, it was quite original for afternoon tea in Ireland. But I just know what we do here in the hotel, people are always looking at it. And then sometimes when you're picking up menus or you're looking at IDs online, you're wondering, mm, that kind of looks like ours. You know, I think that's a great compliment to the team. But uh, we always strive to be the best. And But it's hard doing those numbers and still get the quality out each and every day. Yeah, that's astounding. And also, you know, as a chef myself, like I know how hard it can be to do the day-to-day production, but also have time to do the research and development and the testing for the new things. So how do you balance those two things? Do you have a separate team that's doing R&D or do people just allot certain time of, during the day or out of the week to work on that? those projects it's 
It's me. I'm a bit of a control freak. <laughs> so we're, we're, I know I know what what's coming down the road. Like a couple of years ago as well, like we we did the afternoon tea for uh, Paddington. So I set all the team down, the pitch team. I made them watch Paddington the Bear. I made them watch loads of episodes, right? We could do that. We could do this. And it's the same thing when we did a chocolate afternoon tea. We all watched Willy Wonka. We all sat down and we watched the video. I said, like, guys, we're getting paid to watch kids' films. But we'll always do the research. But the beauty about it is we know we have to be six months ahead. Because as soon as I do the menus and then we do all the allergens and we're happy, then we pass it over to marketing. And then they will fine tune the menus and then we'll do all the PR behind it. So it's not going to happen overnight. Um, but that, that's the beauty of the job. I would like to talk to you a little bit more about your career. But first, we've been talking about tea and we've been talking about the Shelbourne and what a special place it is. Um, and I was okay. wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the hotel itself. I know that it turns 200 next year and that it's a very historic place in Dublin, maybe one of the most historic hotels in the in the country. If you could talk about how important it is to the culture in the city. Well, the, as I would refer to the Shelburne as the old lady, and the Shelburne belongs to the people of Dublin, and we're all only passing through. We're just custodials at the moment. Um, everybody wants a part of the Shelburne. You know, like, so I would run up every morning from the train trying to keep fit. And every time you come around the corner, you wonder what the old lady's going to throw at you. Um, because you don't know who you're going to meet. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, like I said, I'm here 15 years. It probably only feels like five years because it's so busy. It's so hustle and bustle. Like for the hotel, there's, there's 265 bedrooms, which means we could have nearly 500 people for breakfast every morning. We have the Lord Mayor's Lounge just on the right of the building where you, you've had your tea. And um, we would do like 120 covers on average a day for tea. At nighttime, then it would turn into a lounge for our guests. Then you have number 27 bar, which is kind of like our bar food menu where we could do up to 200 covers a day. It's relentless. It doesn't stop. Then in the saddle room, obviously, we have our two rosette restaurants. So we could do 50, 60 covers for lunch and maybe 100 covers for dinner most nights of the week. And then when you take yourself upstairs, we have our outdoor terrace, which is open during the summer months from May obviously until September. If it's not raining every day, but it's, it's closed in. So we could do um, 40 or 50 covers up there for food every day. And then we also have 1826, which is our high-end bar where it's only all high-end whiskeys and champagne. Then when you take it up to the next floor, we've 10 private rooms. Uh, the most historical, obviously, is the Constitution, where the Constitution was drafted. It's a pretty amazing room. We would do some private dinners in there, but like you could be looking at 200, 250 euros a head for dinner. And then we have the, the rest of the nine rooms where we could do functions from 10 people to 120 people. So that's upstairs. Then in our ballroom, the ballroom can sit up to about 350 people, but sometimes we could flip that three times a day. Uh, so it, it's a busy, busy operation. We also then have our, our own leisure center, our own pool. We've over 500 staff. I kept thinking you were going to like stop at some point, but you just kept going with all no. the different rooms no. and, and services and, yeah. and venues. That's no, it's wow. like, the beauty about the Shelburne is it's just, just so much going on. And every, like it's, it's just such a busy hotel, but it belongs to the people of Dublin. You know, there's so much history to it. Like you said, we're 200 years old next year. That's going to be some party that we're going to throw on. Everybody's going to be wanted on the guest list. 
Um, but yeah, that'll be something special that the, the XCOM team will decide what we're going to do soon enough. I love that. I love the way you describe it, that it belongs to the people. Obviously, you know, coming in there, there's probably, you want to have some creativity, but you also want to honor the tradition of the place. And, you know, you want to follow what people are looking for, but you don't want to maybe follow the trends too closely for something with this, the sort of historical weight of the Shelburne. So I guess, how have things changed, you know, food-wise for you at the Shelburne over the last 15 years? And how do you balance those two things of wanting yeah. to honor tradition and also stay current? When you say tradition, obviously before I started here, we used to have a warehouse just uh, south of Dublin. And I went out and I spent a day out there and I found a treasure chest full of menus. And I was like a child in a sweet shop. And I brought them back to the hotel. And we've actually created outside the lobby, we've created a list of old menus that happened throughout the years, dating back to the 1920s. And obviously back then, it was a lot of high saturated fat and boiled boiled food. and uh, It was flour and fat everywhere. Cholesterol had gone through the roof. But what we did last year was I recreated a menu from events throughout the years, but why twist on them? So um, we, from creating menus that happened like in 1924 they did a ballroom event where salad lamb was served on the menu so that was our main course um, and that's actually up in the, the museum now so hopefully the next chef that come in might want to recreate my menu someday um, but hopefully that's not for a while just yet but, uh, but food has changed you know like when, when I started here first in the Shelburne because um, I'm old school you know like for me it would I'm French classically trained and I've, I've watched over the last 15 years and it's an education for me because when I, I call some of the guys in the restaurant now, the, the, the bag and pickle crew, because everything is backpacked, everything's sous vide, everything's a pickle and everything's cooked overnight. And I was like, oh, why, why don't you just braise stuff anymore? Why don't you slow <laughs> roast? You know, so I've watched how it's changed. But I think Dublin as a whole, we're no longer... Um, Meat and two veg, you know, like it has changed. There's some fabulous restaurants in, in Dublin. We're kind of hidden gem out the back where people would associate as being a hotel restaurant, but we're not actually because I have a very good chef de cuisine and we're doing some really good stuff in there because you have to compete because there's so many good restaurants in Dublin. If you're not churning out something that's really good, there's another restaurant that they're going to go to. But the, the, the trends have changed quite a lot down through the, the years. That makes me think about the idea of Irish food. It's changed so much, um, especially in the past 10 years. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you believe Irish food to be today, or if you had to describe what is Irish food to an American, what would you say? I think the ethos of Irish food now, I know myself, it's we're, we're, you try to support local, you, tr you try to get what's closest to you. And um, there's been a lot of influence, obviously, from like, Chefs coming in from different countries, whether they're coming from America or they're coming from the UK or Asia, that they're everything is uh, has changed. I think I think food's got a lot simpler than what, what it used to be. I think we moved away from the seventeen things on the place where it's three or four things and they have to be cooked right. It's a lot harder to cook something simple than it is to overcomplicate it because if the four elements aren't right, you're you're in trouble. But uh, for Irish food now, it can be quite light because I think never, not even in Ireland alone, I think worldwide we become more health conscious. You know, we're, we're, we're questioning everything that's on the plate or can I have that or how many calories are in this? And 
I just think it's it's got a lot lighter, you know, um, and we've got so many great suppliers throughout this small country, you know, like it's whenever I create a menu in the private dining in the constitution, it's 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 my place to show off. I, I can stand in the room and I can firmly say my vegetables are coming from Thorns up by the airport, my beef is coming from Kells. Uh, my fish is coming from uh, Kilkee Harbour or Lamb Bay lobsters are coming from just up the road. So it's we've got a great little market of artists and producers that we, we need to support and we need to keep that going. So Irish food, I think, is it's gone up another level. And like I got great I got great satisfaction when I went to London that time when I went or afternoon tea, I would firmly believe is so much better, you know, um, but it's always improving. It's always improving. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. You mentioned earlier that the key to your ability to be successful is having a great CDC. And I know in general, finding the right staff to do all the stuff because you have such a big operation is probably a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge in a small restaurant. How do you find the right people? And like, what is it that draws them to the Shelbourne? And what are the challenges of staffing a place that's the size and scope of what you do? I've used my career from I, I came up in a lot of hard knocks uh, kitchens you know where if something wasn't right you learned to get it right or you learned to dodge a pot or whatever it was and that, that was the hard school I came up with and I remember when I eventually became the head chef and my mum my actually sat me down and she said do you remember all the nights you used to come home and you used to be crying and you said the chef is giving out to you and I'd say yes mum and she said well you're the chef now it's up to you to lead by example so those words always stuck in my head what I have here in the Shelburne, I'm so lucky. My my team are fantastic. I'm here for like 15 years. I'm probably repeating myself 10 times about that. All of my senior team are with me 15 years. I believe I, uh, interesting story, like before, like all, like all chefs that, that you've interviewed in that before, I was the first day in at five o'clock in the morning and the last home was half 12 at night. I don't know how my wife put up with me for years. Maybe that's why she put up with me because she didn't see me. But I remember, I remember it clearly. Uh, my daughter actually, who was, she was just 18 yesterday. Uh, my daughter was born and I was going to work doing everything in and out. And she said to me one day, she said, uh, she said, Emma walked today and you missed it. And I went, okay. And I knew it was like, you're missing stuff is going by. We two older kids and I just accepted that this was my job and I couldn't do my job without my wife. But just it just really stuck in the head that I needed to change things. And the only one that was going to change things was me. 
So I stepped back and I said, right, do I need to be here? Can I work more efficiently? Because I think if you're already walking into walking into a 16 hour day, you're already behind. So I, I changed me. I decided I, I sat down one day and I did up a roster and I just said, right, I'm going to take these days off and I'm going to work these hours. But I said everybody else is as well. So I'm I'm a, I can actually stand up and say the systems and the methods that I put into the hotel work because my banqueting chef, my pastry chef, my breakfast team, they're all with me 15 years. They have families. I'm probably part of their family. I've got two families. I've got my family at home. i got my family in work because we, we all work together so well. So we look after our staff here in the Shelburne. They, they don't work excessive hours. They get their days off together. Um, it's a great place to work. Everyone, when you look at it, like it's busy, it's very demanding. If it was easy, everybody would do it. But uh, we've been, I've been really, really lucky. I look after them and they look after me. I could not do my job without them. I just guide them on, on what they do. But like it's it's a great pleasure. I wouldn't say this to my boss. It's a great pleasure when you come to work every day and you're happy when you put on your jacket. But we get the support from the GM all the way down to the kitchen porter. It, it's a great place to work. So yes, we look after each other. But like I have a kitchen brigade of nearly 50 chefs. And yeah, I'd say... 35 of them are with me that long because they know what to get. If something's not right, we'll say it's not right, we'll move on. How can we improve things? There's no egos, there's no aggression, there's no shouting. Everybody treats each other with respect. And that's how I still have them. But I had to learn that. I went through the hard knocks to say, well, right, if you do the opposite of that, and the benefits are there. So when I'm not here, I know the guys have the operation. I think that's tribute to me, not to throw flowers at myself, but they know what they're doing. And I trust them 100%. That's so interesting. You know, people um, speak very broadly about sort of like, oh, the industry's changing, you know, expectations are changing. But to hear you tell the story of how how personal that was, that you realized that you needed to make a change. And that was the starting point from where everything else changed from so that obviously when you're at the top of the hierarchy, people look to you as the example of what they're supposed to do, how hard they're supposed to work, how many hours they're supposed to put in and and all that. And so having you start that off must've been a very, just a very powerful way to make that change happen. Yeah. Well, you still have to police it day day in and day out that the guys like everybody has families. Like if you're happy outside of work, you're going to be happy in work. And like when I do get news, People, when they come in, I'm like, going, it's like, it's four o'clock, you're finished. Oh, but I have to do it. No, it's four o'clock, you're finished. You're going home to somebody else to do it. You know, and I, you have to be like that. And it works. It does work. So, yeah, it's, it's a big, busy. I think it's the biggest, busiest five star definitely in Ireland. But it can only be like that for the team that we have, whether it's in the kitchen or the front of the house or whether it's down in the offices, everybody pulls together. I know that you've spent some time cooking overseas. You were in London for a little while. You were in Sydney and a little bit in France. Looking back, how important do you think it is to spread your wings as a chef and gain that experience cooking in different parts of the world? I think I think you need to do it. Like for me, it's I think London is is what's happening. Um, like I just if I just want to talk through my career of where I started and when I went. Sure. Through. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. So yeah, so my relationship started uh, in the Shelburne when I was eight with <laughs> my dad. Then when I was 15, I actually worked here as a, a kitchen steward illegally. Back then it was okay. 
But I worked as a kitchen steward and as a comedy chef for a summer. And that's when I said I wanted to come back here as the head chef. So from there, then I got I was working in a small little restaurant where I'm from. And it, I got the because I left school at 15. School wasn't for me. I don't tell my kids that because I want them to go to college. <laughs> but for me, I just wanted to be in kitchens. So I started like most head chefs or executive chefs or whoever to meet. We have all started 14, 15 years of age. You're in the thick of it. You think you're brilliant, but you haven't got a clue. <laughs> but I, when I was 15, I was working in a small restaurant and I I was only working a couple of days a week and the restaurant closed down. And then I had no job. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I didn't want to go back to school. But then I got the opportunity to go to a catering school in, in Galway. And I think having that reality check so young that I need to make this work or it's going to fall apart. So when I went to college in Galway, I applied myself like crazy. If if I wasn't in college, I was studying at night. And I just applied myself. So when it came to my exams, I got the highest, um, what's, what, I did my catering exams. I, I got the highest results that flew me to London for the Savoy Trust Awards for the City and Guilds as I've come back to me now. I'm getting old. So from there, then I was offered a teaching job in Galway, but I was like, I was only 20 years of age. I, I was sorry, 17 years of age. I was like, I, I don't know enough to be teaching. So from there, then I knocked on the back door of the K-Club in Kildare. I only lived 10 minutes up the road and I knocked on the back door. It was a one-star Michelin at the time and, oh God, was I out of my depth. You know, I walked into the kitchen. I didn't know what was going on. I was like, I'm not able for this. I'm not able for it. But I took to it like a duck to water. I loved it. And I got I got to work with some of the most amazing chefs, which I'm still friends with now, and they've gone on to have brilliant careers. But I spent nearly seven years there learning the craft, where there was a, a butchery course. And then from there, while I was in the K-Club, that's when I went to the likes of the Gavarage on work experience. I went to uh, Le Petit Nice in Marseille, and then I spent some time in Lyon. All, all through there, so I kept coming over and back. Then when I left the K-Club, I went to Australia. So Australia was a, was brilliant, but I decided at that stage in my career, I didn't know whether I was getting burnt out. I wanted to do something different. So I put on a pair of Wellingtons and I worked in the fish market. So in the fish market then, I I loved that. So I was just cutting fish all day, popping oysters all day. It, it, it was amazing. And then from there, I went to work in Bluefin, uh, which was the Keys restaurant then down just by Darling Harbour. And then I went to work in a, in a sushi restaurant which I felt a bit like the karate kid. I was only allowed to wash rice for three weeks before they let me cook it. <laughs> so, yeah, no, but it was brilliant to see those experiences. And when, when you go away and when you have your chef skills, go back to your questions, you don't even need to speak the same language, you know, because once you have your, if you can chop, you can cook, it's all the same. But then um, when I came back, I spent a year also in the, the Clarence at Michael Martin. So that was probably the toughest year of my life, but that kind of trained me to be well-disciplined, to expect the best of suppliers, the best from chefs. But it was the toughest year I think I've ever had in my career. So when when I see CVs coming through and they've worked in the Clarence for a time, I, I know how good these guys actually are because they've been trained so, so well. Then I went to the Marion with Ed Cooney. So I spent four years with Ed as his number two, the executive two in the, the Marion. Loved working in the Marion. Great friends with Ed still to this day. Learned a lot. Uh, but I knew at that stage then Ed wasn't going to go anywhere. So I then took the role for the group executive for the filing collection, which was I opened a hotel, which was a huge learning curve because I was over, I was picking out a kitchen and planning a kitchen from a building site. So I was still learning, developing myself, going along. 
And I spent four years with them where I opened the Dillon Hotel as well. So while I was working for the filing collection, about four years, I got a phone call one day and they said, um, it was the general manager, it was Mr. Liam Doyle, he said, um, would you like to speak to me in the Shelburne? So I, I nearly took his arm off. I, I was kind of like living the dream. I just said, this this is it. This is what I've always wanted. So obviously I had a name in the industry. They they approached me to do it. I remember I met him in the Constitution and all I could hear was blah, 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 blah. When do I start? That's all I wanted to do. So 15 years later... I'm still here, still loving it. Uh, but how important is it? Well, I get a great kick out of knowing a, God, a lot of my guys. I always say to my guys when the, and girls when I come into the kitchen, give me two years. And after two years, if you want to go to the Lanesboro, you want to go to the Dorchester, you want to go to Savoy, you want to go anywhere, I'll make that phone call for you because I would feel confident in your skills after working here for two years. And... I have Adam Neville's just come back from being in, in London for eight years, but he started his career here. So I'm so thrilled for that. He's gone into the Morrison room as the head chef, but he spent uh, he spent quite a few years in Dorchester. So a little little wins like that. Uh, a girl, Mary Reed, used to work for me. She spent a lot of time in the Lanesborough. She's done really well for herself. So it's And then I just recently sent over young Jimmy, as we call him, and he's in the Dorchester now too. So they're spreading their rings and I know they're going to come back in the next two or three years and they're going to only improve the cooking in Dublin. They're only going to improve what they do for everybody else. So it's so, so important to have the basic skills before you go out into the big, bad world and then just put your head down, say yes, have your notebook and keep going. Long-winded answer. But good, and good answer, though. Do you, okay, so after having spent 15 years as in the position you're in, do you still get, cook, do you cook for pleasure? Do you cook for enjoyment? And do you eat for enjoyment? And if so, is there anywhere in particular that you have been enjoying recently? I actually, I do lunch service with the guys, and it's the, it's the one time where I get to switch off and I think in the last two to three years, especially, I'm really enjoying it at lunchtime. I'll, I'll do the pass, I'll cook the fish because I'm watching the kids learn. I'm, when I see, I say kids because they're all younger than me and they take out their notebooks and they're writing their recipes. And that to me, uh, I get off on that. I think it's brilliant. I just It just reminds me when, when I was younger. But just actually, I'm not going to meetings. I'm not thinking about GPs or labor costs or overheads. And I'm just cooking. I'm just cooking a piece of fish. I was cooking uh, a piece of lamb, and you can suddenly you've spent two hours of your day. So like I'm, I'm at that stage now where I'm really enjoying the cooking at, at lunchtime with the guys. Yeah, I do a lot of cooking at home. Uh, so is my wife; she's an excellent cook. I'll say that. But uh, where do I like to? Eat? I like somewhere that's that's simple, that's no stress, but just once it's cooked right. My wife actually loves coming here. It's like a busman's holiday. You know, people would be fretting the chefs in the restaurant. No. Um, but in Dublin, you know, I love going to the chapter one with Mick. I, it's a two-star Michelin. It's, it's excellent cooking. Now. It's it's the best cooking, I think, in my opinion, in Ireland. I, I love going to Locks uh, on the green. It's nice and relaxed. Um, but no, I, I, I'm I very, very easily pleased. If it's a nice bottle of pasta, if it's a nice salad, I'm okay. You know, I'm not, I'm not fussy at all. But um, yeah, I like to eat and drink. Being Irish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It was it was really great to hear about your background, the story of the Shelburne and everything. It's it's such an impressive operation. And I think 
people who aren't in the industry don't understand how much work goes into making a good meal at a hotel restaurant. There's so much behind the scenes and there's so much to, there are so many logistics and so many different people involved. So I think it's quite a testament to your leadership and everything that everything comes together. But I think just when you said that before you go, when we, when we did the TV show here, when they did the series on the Shelburne and the hidden cameras, and we were doing a, a very VIP function for um, the Food and Wine Awards. And I remember uh, my sous chef was measuring the salmon with a ruler. And I said, you had to do that 350 times. And then when I was out and I met friends and they went, do you really measure the salmon? With a router, and I just said, "Well, yeah, that's standard." And they were like, "Oh, they wouldn't have thought. They just thought somebody would have just done it." So it's it's the little things that we take for granted that the public got to see that went, "All oh, right, that's what it's like there." And to have that appreciation, I I, I took great compliment from it. Like, cool. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Great to talk to you. Likewise. Yeah. Hopefully, we will be able to say hi in person next time we're visiting. I'll bring you in for afternoon tea. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at diedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.